Probable hate crime at a Markham mosque. Nova Scotia's Mass Casualty Commission finds that police are not taking useful notes. Federal minister responsible for families tells CTV that the real fault lies with the provinces. And Saudi Arabia and Houthi leadership meet to negotiate peace in Yemen. Good morning. It's Monday, April 10th. I'm Nora, and here are your headlines. Members of a Markham mosque were attacked last Friday morning. Sharan Karuna Karen was arrested for uttering threats, assault with a weapon, and dangerous driving. What's weird is I can't find an explanation in any of the reporting for why he wasn't charged with hate crimes. Karuna Karen allegedly entered the Islamic Society of Markham, tore up a copy of the Quran, and yelled racist and Islamophobic comments at the people in the mosque. Most of the media reports make reference to the driving attack of the Asphalt family in London, Ontario, where four family members were killed. Some reports also list other Islamophobic attacks that have happened at mosques too. And as it's Ramadan, the mosque was more full than it normally would have been at that time. That's basically all the information that there is, though what I think is a bit weird is where Karuna Karen is named by many of the media reports having been charged connected with the incident, CBC specifically does not name him, despite having a story that was as recent as last night at 9pm Eastern Time. They just refer to him by gender and age throughout the article. So lack of explanation for why there's no hate crime charges, some media like CBC not actually naming this individual, these for me are also signs that journalists are still not getting how to cover hate crimes. Anyway, here's hoping more information comes out in the next couple of days. Next to some reaction to the Mass Casualty Commission, which released its report last week. It was examining the police response to the mass murder at Portapic, Nova Scotia, three years ago. CBC's Catherine Tunney has zeroed in on the part of the report that found that the notes taken by responding officers that night and day were, quote, illegible, missing, and deficient overall, unquote. The commission's report straight up says that omissions or errors in a police officer's notes aren't reason enough for courts and tribunals to decide that something did or did not happen because of the state of note-taking is very bad generally. This means that just because a police officer didn't write something down or what he wrote was incomplete or incorrect, that on its own cannot be used to prove or disprove that something happened. At the Mass Casualty Commission, when she testified, former head of the RCMP, Brenda Lucky, said, quote, we stress that importance and officers are provided feedback on good notes, poor notes, and they get so busy that it's one of the first things for some reason, in some cases, to drop by the wayside, unquote. One example of this was comments made by Brenda Forbes, a neighbor who reported to police that either Brenda or Lisa Banfield was worried that the gunman would kill Banfield. Banfield was the gunman's girlfriend at the time. And sorry, the way that I've written this, the article doesn't make it clear about who was worried, whether Brenda or Lisa Banfield. There were three officers who received these comments, but only one kept the notes. Other pieces of information, like the gunman's collection of old police cars, also never stuck in the mind of police as existing. Another one of those things that didn't get passed along through notes. 
The article mentions that this is far from a one-off situation. RCMP notes in the aftermath of Gerald Stanley murdering Colton Bushy were inadequate, for example. The Supreme Court has also condemned the inadequacy of police notes, in particular when a case of two Ontario provincial police officers shot and killed two people. Both officers were told to not take any notes about the incident before talking to a lawyer. And that advice came from their supervisors. Justice Michael Moldover wrote for the majority, quote, allowing police officers to consult with a lawyer before writing their notes is the antithesis of the very transparency that the legislative scheme is intended to promote. Now, annoyingly, Tunney then pivots to someone who says that shoddy notes are one reason for why police should wear body cameras rather than exploring what I think is the most obvious reason for all of this. Police don't take good notes because they don't have to take good notes. In fact, it helps let them off the hook for what they observed, witnessed, experienced or did because it can be chalked up to shoddy notes. As a journalist whose notes are the most important thing in the world to me, none of this passes the smell test. Either you work for a profession where writing is part of the job, or you don't work in that profession. And being a cop comes with a bit of writing, of course, because we deserve to know what's going on. That's the trade-off for a cop being able to walk around with a gun, is that he has to write down what has just happened. But annoyingly, Tunney doesn't get into this fundamental and instead follows the spin. Maybe this isn't a fundamental issue. Maybe cops just always need to wear cameras. The article concludes. Next to national news. Karina Gould, Minister of Families, Children and Social Development, was displaying to Canadians yesterday morning what she has to do to get that sweet MP pension. In an interview with CTV's Question Period, she admits that Canadians are struggling to make ends meet, but, quote, wants to see provincial and territorial governments do more to help, unquote. The report is written up by Spencer Van Dyke. Gould was being pressed on what measures the budget contained to actually help people. She defended the GST rebate but admits that it wasn't going to alone be what helps people who are struggling to afford life right now. Van Dyke writes, quote, Gould added, when it comes to certain affordability measures, such as disability benefits or housing policy, they need to be carried out in concert with provincial and territorial governments. Quote, I think that there's more that provinces could do, unquote, she said. She said that the Liberals have taken, quote, unquote, a lot of measures and that they think about, quote, what else needs to happen, but the provinces need to step up, unquote. I mean, it's one thing like when I say that provinces need to step up or maybe a provincial opposition party member says this or advocates say this, but Gould is literally a minister. It's her job to do this stuff. It's her actual job to come up with things that are not just the GST rebate. Like, I get that no one wants to take accountability for anything these days and that she's just following the party line here. But my God, Karina, you're the minister. You could implement a new family allowance that's universal and that's five times larger than what people are getting through the current child benefit. You could do this, but that's never going to happen because her party doesn't actually care about the affordability crisis. It's working fine for them. So while it isn't news that a liberal cabinet minister has either never read up on what her job actually is or she's really good at being a snake, I do think it's worth identifying how the liberals pull this garbage, hoping that we hear it and say, yes, she's right. Doug Ford is actually to blame. It's a tactic that they use all the time. You have a minister who's literally responsible for this and then goes on national television and says, well, actually, this isn't my fault. Lady, it is literally your fault. It is your fault. It is your government's fault. And regardless of what the provinces are doing, you have a responsibility to do better. She's not going to do better. We shouldn't expect them to do better. They're liberals. But Karina Gould, that's pretty weak. And 
it's Monday morning, meaning that a lot of the news this weekend didn't get reported. <laughs> so this is what I got. And again, hearing the spin and cutting through the spin, I think is really, really important. And finally, officials from Saudi Arabia and Oman have held talks with the head of Houthi Supreme Court Council, Mahdi al-Mashat, in Sena'a to try and end the civil war in Yemen. This news is being reported by Sabah, a Houthi-run media outlet, says Al Jazeera. Oman has been mediating consultations between Saudi Arabia and Sena'a, controlled by the Houthis. The talks were boosted last week since Saudi Arabia and Iran agreed to reestablish links in a deal brokered by China. Key to the talks have been reopening Houthi-controlled parts of the Sena airport, paying for wages for public servants, and creating a timeline for foreign forces to leave Yemen. Saudi Arabia has blockaded Sena's ports. The two sides have also been negotiating prisoner swaps. Al Jazeera reports that Houthi leader Mohammed al-Bukhaiti said that achieving peace would be, quote, a triumph for both parties, unquote, and he urged all sides to try and, quote, preserve a peaceful atmosphere and prepare to turn the page of the past, unquote. What makes things complicated is that the Houthis are not in total control of the country. Talks will have to include other groups if a lasting peace is possible. However, this is the closest the country has been to peace since the war broke out. The Houthis toppled a Saudi-backed government in 2014. They are aligned with Iran and have basically controlled the northern part of the country. A military alliance led by Saudi Arabia since 2015 has killed tens of thousands of people and devastated the population. Al Jazeera reports that 80% of Yemenis are dependent on humanitarian aid. Although a report from the United Nations says that far more people than tens of thousands have been killed. Global News from 2021 reports that the war has killed, at that point, at least 230,000 people. In 2020, the Canadian government claimed that there was no credible evidence that Canadian-built weapons and equipment were used by Saudi-led troops. Project Plowshares and Amnesty International called for the federal government to stop a $15 billion deal between arms companies and Saudi Arabia after Canadian-made light armored vehicles were photographed in Hadja province in Yemen. They had been outfitted with machine guns, cannons, and PGW defense technologies, sniper rifles. Those are your headlines for Monday, April 10th. I'm Nora. I hope you have a great Monday. And if you've got it off like I do, ah, soak it in.